fluffy bread, fresh tortillas, classic burger buns, and so many carbs. Carb fear is real, but Hero Bread makes healthier versions of the carb-heavy favorites we love the most. We're talking fewer calories, zero to two grams net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and seriously great taste. Plus more of the dietary fiber and protein you want. No compromise. Don't skip out on your favorites. Just use Hero Bread. Get 10% off your order at Hero.co with code Hero10 at checkout. That's Hero10 at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Then I say, yeah, I, I do. Yeah, I, I am black. Hey, I'm Jessa Bombalera. I'm here in El Barrio. We have tomatoes. We have, um, how do you say anything? Cucumber? Cucumbers. Turn up the lights in here, baby. Extra bright, I want y'all to see this. Turn up the lights in here, baby. You know what I mean? Want you to see everything. Want you to see all of the whites. Pale hands, fake tans, all of the whites, all of the whites. Until it's whites everywhere we are, all of the whites. Welcome back to Fraudsters. I'm Cena Gazzetevi at Cena Now on all social media. And as always, I'm joined by Justin Williams, comedian, historian, amazing vocalist, and inceptor of this miniseries on race hustlers. Justin, first of all, are you the new post-Kimya Kanye? Answer me. I am the greatest recording artist of all time. And let me tell you something. The reason why we did that song is because we've been we got a lot of great feedback from listeners about the song parodies. So we decided to do another one for you. It's amazing the number of people that said how great our singing voices are and the number of people that have specifically said, please, please, fraudsters, hosts and producing staff and everyone at Last Podcast Network, sing more. We want to hear it. Please. More, more, more poorly made parody songs, please. <laughs> hey, you ask and you shall receive. I'll do a whole album for you guys if the demand is there. <laughs> so, Justin, this is our fourth episode of Race Hustlers. Uh, how are you feeling and what inspired the beautiful rendition of All of the Lights, really? So that song is inspired by all of the white women trying to steal my job. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, so I just got to say, I know it's not, I know we got to get to the meat here, but I just got a quick aside here. So I remember, and I'm, you know, I love shrimps and I was doing them many years ago in my place and we decided, was with some friends and we put on all of the, all of the lights. I almost said all of the whites. We put on the actual Kanye song and we watched this music video on repeat for hours and we were just laughing so much so that I was crying. And you know when you laugh so hard, you cry, right? But this was different. After I was done tripping, like the next day, into the next month, into the next six months, every time I laughed, I would start tearing up. It was an involuntary reaction. Even a tiny joke, I would start tearing up from laughter. And all I could think about was all the lights. 
So thank you for helping me with that now. I'm crying again, Justin. Thank you. I love to sing. (laughs) All right. So, Justin, I know there's a long history in the U.S. of black people passing as white to escape racism and persecution. Yeah, not just uh, black people, but also Native Americans, right? Uh, The historical phenomenon, uh, especially during Jim Crow, would be called passing. That's where someone who is not of white ancestry, if they're perceived as white because they have fairer skin, uh, just neglects to share that detail with white society and it enables them all kinds of social privileges that they wouldn't have had otherwise. So I have a recently deceased great uncle, RIP, that told us stories about how due to his lighter hair, eyes, and skin, he was able to attend University of Missouri football games in the 1940s, right? And he lived a different life because of public perception. Uh, Philip Roth also wrote a book about this a phenomenon called the human stain. So today we're going to talk about the stealing of identity through appearance. And Rachel Dolezal is obviously the first person to come to mind, but she's not the first person to try to pass off as black. There's actually a history behind that as well, right? I mean, can you can you go into a little bit of the history that shows us how this happened, that, that goes back, that really dives into blackface, really? Yeah. So again, if you're looking for the roots of this, right, you have to go all the way back to the era of uh, slavery, right? Uh, in the 1820s and the you know 1840s, right, is where you have the emergence of traveling musical shows like Jumping Jim Crow, where white performers perform in blackface. The minstrel tradition makes its way all the way into the early 1900s. Part of this is uh, racial politics of like glorifying the old South, right? Seeing it in a romantic way. And then it's also ridiculing black people, Mm. allowing audiences to laugh at black people. But the, you know, it's so racist that white people are actually playing the black people. Right. And then sort of now in this post civil rights climate, um, where in some circles, right, it's not cool necessarily to be white anymore. Right. We're in a, a society that at least in rhetoric says that it celebrates diversity and celebrates globalization and celebrates hybrid identities and very importantly provides resources for historically marginalized communities. We've now seen white people, uh, pretending to be members of other groups in order to access those resources. Just a quick note, we had this, uh, remember, uh, race is a social construction, as we talked about at the start of this series, which means that it changes, right? And it's based on things like intermarriage or perception or things like that. A good example of this would be in Brazil, you know, people had actually found, for most of Brazil's history, they found that it was good to identify as lighter on the racial spectrum in order to access resources. But when Brazil instituted affirmative action in its federal university system, people that identified as white or brown started identifying themselves as brown and black. Yeah, you know, I would be remiss not to throw some shade on my own people in this moment as far as the history of blackface goes. You know, there's a Persian New Year, Justin, uh, the first day of spring every year. And I started learning this later in my life about some of the 
customs and traditions. And there's always things you do. You make a half scene, just like these seven elements and all this stuff. You're supposed to, uh, the night before, jump over some fire. It all dates back to the ancient Persian times of Zoroastrianism. But there actually is this guy called Haji Firuz. And Haji Firuz is basically this, in the olden days, is basically from this poem, this surf that comes around and entertains everybody. And what the fuck do you know? This dude is in blackface. And it's every year in the Persian New Year, this guy runs around with like a tambourine and singing songs, and he's in blackface. So this is not just an American experience. This is a global thing that has happened. Now, I will say one thing about the Persian Empire uh, is that they did enslave everybody. Everyone got enslaved. (laughs) So was it... (laughs) If there's one out, I will give. I'm not saying they weren't racist or the symbolism isn't racist, but I will say they also did enslave all kinds of different people. So (laughs) I I do want to make that point uh, to ensure. And I haven't done too much research on Haji Firuz because, frankly, it makes me so uncomfortable. And every year around Persian New Year, my brother and I are just like, when is Haji Firuz going to cancel our entire culture? So (laughs) we're just waiting for that moment. (laughs) Yeah, it's, you know, it's not just the Persians either. Uh, you know, in Holland, uh, they have a character named Black Pete that is a companion of like St. Nicholas. Kind of the same era, right? And kind of the same thing, right? It's, uh, you know, Holland, if you think in the 1800s, right, has this extensive empire that's involved in slavery. Although Black Pete is supposed to be a Moor, but right, this is now, this tradition has made its way all the way to the 1800s till today, and it's controversial, right? But just another example of how blackface and like fetishization of like black people and like uh, the peddling of like stereotypes is pretty has a pretty long tradition in like western civilization as well as like you were saying eastern civilization too right yeah it's all over the place and like we gotta just fucking deal with it although there are stories that and you know accounts that at least on Persian New Year, sometimes Haji Firuz will have half a white face because they don't mean to be doing blackface. That's just what happened before, which I think is even more weird that he's got <laughs> this like half moon face thing going on. So, uh, God bless him, whatever they want to do. God, just stop. Why do you even need him? Why can't you just not have any painting on your face? Why do you have to have painting on your face at all? Roddy Piper. Yeah, the, exactly. The wrestler Roddy Piper, actually, if you want a more recent example. You mean Rowdy Rowdy Piper. <laughs> yeah. He painted half of his face black and half of his face white to promote a match at WrestleMania. I believe it was against the Junkyard Dog. And he turned and one voice was black uh, and then the other voice was white. And then he turned towards the camera and said that it wasn't about racism. He, it was that he, and then he endorsed Nelson Mandela. It's a very confusing promo racially, and we don't know how to feel about it. <laughs> all right, all right. I think we've done enough of a preamble here. Let's dive into the specific manifestation of the cultural appropriation of Rachel Dolezal. For the uh, uninitiated, let me welcome you to the fun house of fun houses. Rachel Dolezal was the chair of the Office of Police Ombudsman Commission in Spokane, Washington, as well as a professor of Africana Studies at Eastern Washington University. And this is the kicker president of the local chapter of the NAACP until she was outed as white in June of 2015. 
A local TV journalist was interviewing her about racist hate mail that she had allegedly received in the Spokane chapter of the NAACP's P.O. Box, and we got this clip. Speaking of that, did your dad ever make it to Spokane in January for the ribbon cutting? Um, n- no, actually, he has, um, un- unfortunately, has bone cancer and was not able to get cleared for surgery, and, and so... Yeah, that sounds like a terrible break for you. I'm sure that he would he, he would have been very proud of you. Is that your dad? Yeah, that's that's my dad. This man right here is your father? Right there? Uh, oh. Yes, ma'am. Okay. I was wondering if uh, <laughs> if your dad really is an African American man. That's a very I mean I don't I, uh, I don't know what you're what? implying. <laughs> Are you African American? Oh, oh, oh. oh no. No, no. I don't. I don't understand. No, 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 no. The question. Of, I did tell you that. Yes, that's my dad, and you, he was unable to come in January. Are your parents? I'm are not, they white? I, I re- no. <gasps> run, 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 run. <laughs> yes. Let me tell you something. There's no black person in the world that's never been a, like not known the answer to the question. Are we black? <laughs> We're like reminded of it like all the time. like what do you mean by that question so the man in that photo was not her father but this guy albert wilkinson who's a close friend and father figure yeah it actually wasn't even a photo of albert wilkinson it was actually a a photo of al sharpton before he lost weight so (laughs) uh but you know what's what's amazing about that clip is that she's just if i was her father i'd be like what the flying fuck my daughter just told me I was not her dad's like some other dude is her dad. That's yeah. tough to hear. Like Justin, what if what if your kid, you just had a kid, little, you know, you're you're a little boy, grew up one day and then he just like was like, "Oh no. Uh, you know, my my dad is the host of Frosters. His name's Cena Gaznavi." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he would pick a good, you're a good man, so I'd be happy that you were taking care of him, but. That's very sweet. But I'd embarrass, but I'd embarrass him. There's no way he'd embarrass me like that. I'd be like, look, I got the pictures to prove I'm your dad. <laughs> and I'm leaking them, and I'm leaking them straight to the media. But you know, in, in Rachel's world, she was probably, you know, born in Mobile, Alabama. As a child who crawls the color barrier of desegregated schools. But in the fucking real world, Rachel Dolezal was born to Ruth Ann and Larry Dolezal in Troy, Montana in 1977. Her parents are both very religious and, drumroll, very white. The small town of Troy is what? Uh, did you say 95% White? Yes. Yes. And the other 5% is like, I wish we were white. <laughs> no, the, the other 5% are Italians. Like, Troy, Montana <laughs> is a place that sounds like it doesn't even accept Catholics as white yet. <laughs> so Rachel did like a media tour after this outing and stuff that she claims that she never felt connected to her white birth parents, uh, even claiming at one point that she can't say for sure that they are even her real parents. Let's play a clip. I haven't had a DNA test. There's been no biological 
proof that Larry and Roseanne are my biological what? parents. There's a birth certificate that has your name on it and their names on it. I'm not necessarily saying that, that I can't prove what? they're not, but I don't know that I can actually prove they are. I mean, the birth certificate is issued a month and a half after I'm born. Um, it's certainly, um, there are no medical witnesses to my birth. Okay, okay, wait, 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 wait. I just want to make something really clear. If I would ever say this about my parents, my mother would say this. You know what that means? That's Farsi for, I'm going to slap you so hard that you breathe out your asshole. And that is what, <laughs> that is what she would say. This is unreal. Who says this to their parents? Yeah, Donald Trump is actually more honest about birth certificates than Rachel Dolezal. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like when it became apparent that suggesting her parents weren't uh, her real parents wasn't going to land with anyone, she pivoted a little bit. Years later, in a Netflix documentary dramatically titled the Rachel Divide. She described her upbringing as deeply traumatic, citing emotional and physical abuse and claiming that her birth was so painful for her mother that she was condemned to earn her parents' love as punishment. My birth story was narrated to me from my mother as being one of the most traumatic times of her life and that I almost killed her because she hemorrhaged almost blood to death. My older brother, Josh, his birth was textbook, very easy for my mother. And because of how I was born, he was blessed and I was cursed. He was loved and I was in need of earning love. I internalized that I either did something wrong or was just wrong. What's interesting about like sort of the white people that are doing this right is that in the absence of a narrative of victimhood you have to invent one. So saying yeah I gave my mom pain during the birth so I always felt excluded. It's like God, you don't even remember something happening to you. I mean, it's it like it's like you have to go back before you had memories to make up somebody not loving you. I mean, it's just like it's, it's it, to me, it's hilarious. That is exact. Thank you for encapsulating what I was feeling there. That makes a lot of sense. So when Dolozal was fifteen, Larry and Ruth Ann started adopting children, and they ended up adopting four black children. Their names were Ezra, Esther, Isaiah, and Zach. Rachel says that her new siblings reignited a sense of black identity that dated back to when she was a toddler. Let's be honest. Reignited? Come on now. You ignited. We didn't start the fire. <laughs> she's born in Troy, Montana, but she goes just, you know, she just really felt the soul as as a 9-month-old. She knew that she was black. And 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 then when she's 15, that's when she really she actually what's great is that she keeps trying to stick with the birth story because it's convenient with her if she would have said i grew up around a bunch of black people and so i always felt that way like she would actually been able to get it's the it's the need to and we'll see this as a constant theme it's the need to like kind of top black people it's like rachel yeah. knew she was black before i knew i was black i didn't even know i was black when i was like six months old but rachel knew she was black you know what i mean it's ridiculous i mean i'm sure we all have friends like i've had fr i've had friends that grew up around black people in uh very black neighborhoods and they don't try to be actually black 
They vibe with black people. They understand, they empathize more with black culture and black community and black issues more than other white people. And, and that's what I think is supposed to happen. That's empathy. That's true allyship, if you ask me. But I think we have a, a clip of her uh, talking about this toddler shit. I would say uh, about five years old. You began it, identifying yourself as African-American? I, I was drawing self-portraits with the brown crayon instead of the peach crayon and Mother, oh. the black, you know, black curly hair and you know yeah that that was how, that was how i was portraying myself you know there was a color in the crayola box justin uh when i was growing up uh that was called you know what it's called sienna brown and i hated it because <laughs> the teacher was like oh sienna brown why don't you use this one they didn't say use it on your skin they didn't use use this as your skin but like this is your color sienna and i was like first of all not my name I don't know who Sienna is. Okay, can we just get beyond this? And why I'm not brown. I'm, this is not a thing. I don't even know what you mean when you say brown. What is? What are we talking about here? How, this and to her parents, right? They denied any of this ever happening to Dolezal. This never fucking happened. Remember, you don't really have a memory at four years old. You don't really remember. Unless something maybe traumatic happened to you. Some life-shattering event might have happened at four years old that makes you remember. You're not going to remember just coloring. Yeah, and especially not in her context. (laughs) She doesn't have any interactions with black people. So what... I think what she's doing is kind of like piggybacking on people that experience not wanting to conform to gender norms at that age. She's kind of piggybacking on that discourse because it's not like, oh, I went to school in Detroit and I colored myself the way the other kids. It's like she grew up in Troy, Montana. She had no contact with any black people probably up at, you know, up until she was 15. So again, she's it's what you'll see with this type of fraud is people kind of using languages of social justice for people that have complicated identities and trying to like co-op them as part of their fraud. The one thing I will say though, is is that distinguishes her from kind of other fraudsters is that it doesn't seem like it is as insidious as others in the sense that it's not like she was trying to make a buck at 15, like a, like a Barry Minko, right? Or trying to pull one over on people. It's almost like she really, truly was in search of her own identity, but the uh, effects and impacts and the ripple effects of her doing that were very detrimental. Is, do you feel that? Nah, it's a hustle. Uh <laughs> All of this is backward justification for her finding what, you know, what she does is she goes into, you know, they go into spaces where people don't have a lot of exposure to black people. And then you pose as a black person in order to take the resources that those places have allotted theoretically for black people. So I see. So she's tracking the language back. Yeah. Tracking the entire story and rebuilding it from the ground up. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of white kids have identity issues. Uh, They might just like rap or they might just get into punk rock. They don't go. I always consider myself as a black child. Like, like her narrative, what she's giving here is like Steve Martin's the jerk. That's how ridiculous it is. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I was born a poor black child. I remember the days sitting on the porch with my family, singing and dancing down in Mississippi. Oh, 
You were left on our doorstep. But we raised you like you were one of us. You mean I'm going to stay this color? <laughs> Nathan, I'd love you if you were the color of a baboon's ass. Yo, whenever someone asks me, like, how, what did I grow up on comedy-wise and stuff like that, it's really basically all black comedians and in living color. It, it really is. <laughs> I'm not over here saying I'm black now, that I'm a black comedian, and I'm touring as a black comedian. It's it's very upsetting. All right, so so Rachel, this is that's Rachel's childhood. She's obviously painting or, or, or doing all of these art projects. She went and continued her art uh you know interest at Bellhaven University in Jackson, Mississippi to study art. And by the way, she still paints. And I suppose art is some sort of imitating life, is imitating art here of some kind. She paints almost exclusively black subjects still. So take that for whatever it's worth. But while at Bellhaven, she was a historian in BSU and was active in the diversity, equity, and inclusion work on campus, crediting herself as the reason Bellhaven started offering an African-American history course. She also said that she, quote, made it into a black school through her efforts in recruitment and retention programs, which led to an increase in the black student population by 10 percentage points while she was there. Everyone, I just want everyone to know that Bell Haven is in the state of Mississippi. So Rachel Dolezal is claiming credit for bringing black people to Mississippi. <laughs> She was a force. She's like a, a magnet. It's a magnet of a force for good. So after she brought all these black people to Mississippi, uh, she went to Howard for graduate school. She literally went to a historically black college. There, she was still identifying as white. We know this because in her second year, her scholarship was rescinded which led her to sue the school on the grounds of racial discrimination. When asked about this, she said, The reasons for the my full tuition scholarship being removed and my teaching position as well, my TA position, were that other people needed opportunities and you probably have white relatives and that, you know, that can afford to help you with your tuition. And I thought that that was an injustice. Well, what the what the she is actually saying that the fact that she is a white person not getting access to resources is racism at a historically black college. Yeah, it's this fact here that makes me go full force on her and have like no sympathy whatsoever, because what she's doing is she's exploiting like post civil rights initiatives. So for those of you that uh sort of aren't familiar, right? Howard University, along with schools like, you know, Spelman and Clark and Morehouse are actually the elite black, historically black colleges and universities, right? So uh, as a white person applying to those schools, she is actually given preference for admissions because she diversifies the student body, right? So she's choosing to be white in order to gain access 
to those resources and then trying to sue the school for access to even more resources. So it shows you this is about a scam. It's not someone who identifies as black. It's someone who's exploiting all of these loopholes uh, that society has for diversity and inclusion. And this is the fundamental thing that we have a problem with is that when white people take on the black identity and go through life this way, you are you're taking away opportunities. You are taking away resources. You are taking away a future for actually black people that have to deal with being black every day, not just happen to be black when you get into graduate school or somewhat later in graduate school. You got to be fucking kidding me. This clip, that clip alone should be the entire show, and we should just have played the clip, app in the episode, and then you can comment on our fucking Twitter after that. FrostersLPN at gmail.com. Send us an email. Uh, <laughs> fucking A. Wow, that one, I like flipped a table if I could, if I had the strength to do that, I would do that. But listen, fast forward seven or eight years, Dolezal is divorced from her black husband, living in Spokane, Washington with her mixed race son and her adoptive brother, Isaiah, who had come to live with her. When Isaiah moved in, that's when she started identifying as openly black. According to her, being the mother of two black children gave her license to assume a black identity. So she's got her biological kid, and then she's got her, basically, her younger brother, who she's now taking care of. Well, I guess we could say that as the blackness rubbed off on her, the bronzer rubbed on. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I want to tell you, someone uh, as a black guy married to a white woman, that's not how that works. My wife is not like, I am now black. It's like, no, you aren't. <laughs> You're a white lady that I married, and that's fine. Be a white lady. As a man married to a Japanese woman, I still watch the same amount of anime that I did before we started dating. So it's good. I think just my taste is better. By the way, I just want to make a note to the audience here. Hazel made it a note in the script to say, at Cena and Justin, bronzer is makeup. So thank you, Hazel, for thinking we are Neanderthals. <laughs> I don't know what you don't know. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I know what bronzer is. I live in New Jersey. <laughs> oh i feel like you and i are like opening at the funny bone in newark right now <laughs> <laughs> or like reading pennsylvania's funny bone is there a funny bone in reading pa i know there's one in pittsburgh Anyways. Yeah, I was say, the, the funny bone in newark but in 1954 that's where... <laughs> <laughs> before the rise anyways yeah. so around that time she's beginning to lead the local chapter of the NAACP, serving on the Police Accountability Board and teaching at EWU, teaching classes like African-American women's hair and research methods. Hello! Oh my fucking God. Can we please stop? How do you live with yourself? This is unreal. Again, why wasn't there a black person running the local chapter? You know, honestly, I would be fine with a white person running the local chapter too. That doesn't mean, that doesn't seem to be wrong in any way. If they're an ally, if they're down with the cause, God bless, at least it's honest. Justin, right? Am I wrong about that? Well, that, I mean, historically, the NAACP had a lot of white participation in its organization. It was the most likely to have white participation, but those white people didn't pretend to be black. 
I think it's also, you know, this is just my demographic speculation. It's also about the Pacific Northwest actually doesn't have a lot of African-Americans. So you can like pose as one credibly. Uh, ironically enough, uh, my great uncle that passed actually went to the state of Washington precisely for that same reason, uh, that he oh. wasn't assumed to be black there. Right. And so even if I go to a city like like a city, I'm not even, we're not even talking eastern Washington. Right. If I go to a city in the Pacific Northwest, I always make the joke that. That when I get on my flight back home from a show in Portland, uh, the Trailblazers are the only remaining members of the black community <laughs> left in the city. This is the Portland Trailblazers basketball team. It's a basketball <laughs> reference. Wait, but again, we have Miss Cleo come up again. The uh, the her first fraud was in. Uh, the the Langston Hughes Performing Arts Center, I believe, right? Uh, and she defrauded people. Man, Washington gets a bad rep for this kind of stuff. But listen, it seems like it would be a lot of effort for them. I think for, uh, at a fundamental level, this is one thing I keep going back to all of these fraudsters is that just given my lifestyle, I can't imagine taking on this, the weight of carrying something like this. But she taught classes, which means she had students. And that means students could say what it was like to be in class with her. One of the things that was kind of like, okay, it doesn't really add up, but I'm not going to question it, was like, she told me, I don't know what we were talking about. She was like, oh, yeah, like when I lived in Montana, like I used to like live in a teepee and hunt for my own food. And I was oh, like, really? yeah. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Like she's Native American and black, you know. The two definitely correlate. The Native American part of it, you know, makes sense. Um, yeah, definitely not. I was so stupid. That doesn't really make sense. So there was that. And then when when we were in class, like, in, um, I forgot what class it was, but like she'd be going in out the white people real hard, and I'd be like, oh, Rachel, hold on, girl, reel it in. You doing a little bit too much. Reel it in. I'd be feeling bad for the white people in class. And I get it, you know, white people. Some white people are crazy. Uh, white supremacy, very serious topic. Um, but sometimes, you know, there's a few bad apples, but that doesn't ruin the bunch, you know what I'm saying? So there was that. And like, it's crazy because other people told me, they were like, yo, there's something off with her. And I'm like, no guys, like, I literally called my parents and I was like, oh my God, there's this black woman doing so many good things in the community. Like, I love her, blah, blah, blah. You know, like I used to, like, it was just crazy. So like, of course you can imagine when the story popped, I was like, Fluffy bread, fresh tortillas, classic burger buns, and so many carbs. Carb fear is real, but Hero Bread makes healthier versions of the carb-heavy favorites we love the most. We're talking fewer calories, 0 to 2 grams net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and seriously great taste. Plus more of the dietary fiber and protein you want. No compromise. Don't skip out on your favorites. Just use Hero Bread. Get 10% off your order at Hero.co with code Hero10 at checkout. That's Hero10 at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Huh? What? This poor kid. Is another theme we're going to see with other fraudsters that have committed this form of fraud, though. It's the essentialization of black identity as struggle. And being mm. anti-white, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna see this come across. I mean, like you're seeing, and we'll see this later, right? Actual black people are like, we're like we're not all revolutionaries all the damn time, and we're not all a uh, stolen script from the sitcom Good Times, right? But it's like these these are the identities that these white women take on when they're trying to be black. Oh my god, it's so why just it's just very uncomfortable. I just can't. I just. Uh... 
So she had been living as a black woman for about five years when her adoptive sister, Esther, came to live with her. Both then became involved, and this is where it gets real crazy. And again, there's always something that starts to unravel a fraudster's identity. They, Rachel and Esther became involved in charges of sexual abuse against Josh Dolezal, Rachel's only biological sibling. Rachel Dolezal claims to have been supporting her sister Esther's allegations and was slated to testify against her brother. According to her, that led to her parents to campaign to destroy her reputation and credibility, culminating in that interview that we heard earlier where the reporter confronted her about her race. And that is when Rachel Dolezal broke the internet. Are the concepts of transracial and transgender at all comparable? That's just one of the many questions igniting a social media firestorm over Rachel Dolezal. This, uh, this, this fake black lady, Rachel? With uh, Rachel Dolezal. Everybody's saying, like, you could play Rachel Dolezal. Yeah, I think, like, when, when Tina, there, oh, there, there she blows. There she blows. There's Dolezal. Woman at the center of a cultural firestorm in this country over these last days, Rachel Dolezal, the NAACP chapter leader accused of lying about her race. Justin, have you ever told a lie so big about your identity? And then did you own it afterwards? Um, I mean, on AOL Instant Messenger, I pretended to be a cousin of Kansas City rapper Tech 9 but that's it. So okay. no. Very prob- very problematic, Justin. Well, I mean, Dolezal, instead of apologizing for misleading folks, went on a talk show, and as we've seen time and time again on this show, she double-fucking-downed. We don't have a vocabulary to really express racial fluidity, So, um, but I do like the term trans-black that Melissa Harris-Perry suggested because it does um, kind of cover the... I wasn't born this way, but this is who I really am component. Um, But transracial, I think is just, it it almost sounds like I'm neutral and I'm not neutral on political and social issues. Before I go into how infuriated I am, she's basically talking about race being fluid, that you can choose To, to, to do this means you are accepting an identity that feels truthful to you or feels that it is your true sense. And things I've also heard on top of this, and I actually just recently heard this from a black woman, that what's the big deal? We have trans people. Why can't we have transracial? Why can't it be a fluid thing? Justin. So I don't know your friend. Uh, I don't I don't know her well, so I don't know her uh, intentions. But here is I say what the difference is, right? It's true that race and gender are both social constructions, right? They're made up. The problem with being transracial, right, is that it only works one way. It allows someone like Rachel Dolezal to take resources from black people, but it doesn't allow me to be a white man during a traffic stop. Or it doesn't allow me to be a white man during a bank loan. So essentially only right white people get to be transracial in this society, right? So that would be the difference, right? People that are transgender face all kinds of social cost when they make that decision. Their lives are incredibly difficult. 
Uh, they face rejection from their families. They, you know, they face, you know, scorning from society. They face, you know, all, all kinds of things that we see in the statistics, right? Uh, saying that you're, you know, black and then getting to head the NAACP isn't a cost, right? It's actually exploiting, you know, resources that were made available to a particular group. It's in, it's in the same way that, yeah, sexuality is a, you know, it can be fluid, but if I pretend to be a gay student in order to get resources that are made for uh, gay students, right, that's taking resources from people. It's not really being a part of that. I think group. at the end of the day, it goes back to that fundamental thing of who cares what your intent is, it's the impact that you should be aware of at the end of the day. Is that fair? No, yeah, it's and it's also about it's exploiting it's again, it's exploiting loopholes in like liberalism mm. is what I think you'll see as a theme that we have here, right? But yeah, it just the street doesn't go both ways. If black people had the ability, like outside of people that could pass physically, if I could say I feel that I'm a white man and I could get treated as a white man with my brown skin in society, then trans being transracial would have, you know, more meaning. But if it's just going to be like white people putting on bronzer, like taking jobs from black people, that there's nothing particularly noble or liberal about that. It's actually part of the cycle of white people exploiting blackness that we talked about that goes back to blackface from the 1800s. So when Dolezal's story came out, it was a shit show, a media firestorm. And it's ludicrous that a white woman would be living as a black scholar and activist. She she broke the internet. I mean, this was crazy. This was insane. This is what all anyone taught. You would think, Justin, that this is a once-in-a-generation occurrence. Guess what, folks? Dolezal was just the first. Maybe not the first. The first one we knew about. But when it comes to flexing your color, no one does it better. Then Jessa Bombalera, I'm here in El Barrio, East Harlem. Oh, uh, you oh. probably know this neighborhood because the Husana Melissa Mark Viverito, who used to be the speaker <laughs> of your city council, sold my fucking neighborhood to developers and gentrifiers. Oh, That's oh. still up. You talk about us to show up, Ben <laughs> Shona, in all these neighborhood council meetings trying to fight gentrification. Ain't nothing changed. And then, real quick, I want to talk about some of my experiences in the Bronx um, on Thursday. So, you know, y'all heard from a few people who were there and thank you much power to all my siblings who were standing up, my black and brown siblings who were standing. Um, it is not a surprise or shock that they are using counterinsurgency methods against us in the Bronx, black and brown people. Again, right? and black happened, and brown people. Saying they have no mask goes beyond that. They were spitting, coughing and sneezing on us directly and saying, I have COVID, right? Uh, kettled us before the curfew. Uh, I also want to call out all these white New Yorkers who waited four hours with us to be able to speak and then did not yield their time to black and brown indigenous New Yorkers who thought that their sense of, I thought cops was here to protect us, but I guess they're not. <laughs> Boy, you think that this sort of like shock and empathy thing is the move. Okay, well, let me uh, welcome Jessica Krug to the show. Shalom, Jessica. Shalom. In this clip, you could see white woman in reflective pink aviators and hoop earrings castigating white people for taking up space figuratively and literally by gentrifying, quote, her home in a barrio. Krug is the author of the well-received scholarly text, Fugitive Modernities, and was recently a professor of African diasporas at the George Washington University. 
Krug was fired after she copped to having, okay, here we go, people, impersonated a whole variety pack of ethnic backgrounds from North African to Afro-Latina to Black American in an internet confession in the fall of 2020. Jessica Krug is a Jewish woman that posed as all of these different ethnicities. And she you heard her right there, Justin, saying, I, myself, black and brown people, me, with my people, my siblings, black and brown people. What do you make of that, Justin? What I like about this is that she's pretending to be a Puerto Rican from the Bronx, but she has my accent. She's from Kansas City. She's from my hometown. And it's it's just, the accent is just so hilarious of a white woman from Kansas City attempting to be a Puerto Rican from the Bronx. It's the two most different accents and she can't do it. She can't do it. It's hilarious. Justin, you actually had a friend that uh, reacted to this clip as well. Elena Romero, who's a scholar and who is actually Puerto Rican and actually from New York City. Here's what she had to say about that accent. In today's what the fuck <laughs> blackfishing news, meet racial ventriloquist Jessica A. Krug, the former George Washington University professor who claimed, get this, that she <laughs> was Afro-Boricua. Bomba! Jess La Bombera, as she called herself, is more like Jess La Boba, thinking that she could fool us with that horrible fake regional accent, sounding more like a cop than an activist from Boston rather than from El Bronx. This foul-mouthed culture vulture is in fact just an ordinary white Jewish chick from suburban Kansas City who assumed various identities over the past decade, first claiming North African blackness, then U.S.-rooted blackness, then Caribbean-rooted Bronx blackness, lastly, living at El Barrio, a.k.a. a New Yorican. Boy, Perry Thomas must have been turning in his grave when he heard about this one. Here's a tip for all y'all space invaders. If you're going to imitate us, please don't make your parents addicts or call your mom a prostitute. And above all, for the love of Jesucristo, please stop dancing salsa. <laughs> Appreciate. Don't appropriate. Yo, I have to say, Jesus Christo, it gets me every time. Oh my God, it's so good. <laughs> Well, I mean, she was fantastic. Maybe it was obvious to Elena that Krug was playing a part, but her but her undoing took a while. People didn't challenge her. Maybe because she's so offensive about her cribbed racial identity, she's not just black or Latinx or Algerian. She is the most marginalized. Uh, Justin, tell me more about this. I, this is just insane how this how this woman where is able to do this. Yeah, she took a, takes on a lot of identities, right? But for her Afro-Latina identity, right? She says that her parents are prostitutes and like crackheads and all this stuff. And so it's this trend that we saw that starts with Rachel Dolezal and you'll see it here. It's the need to like essentialize their minority uh, identity to like the saddest, most oppressed version of it. You know, it's like a way of like, if you, if you tell a story that's so outlandish, people feel uncomfortable actually challenging it. Exactly right. If you just go to the absurd people are like oh how could anyone make up such an absurd story again this is what fraudsters have done time and time again who would lie about something like this barry minko who would lie that is the thing that we're <laughs> seeing again in the acknowledgments of her 2018 text fugitive modernities 
Krug specifically nods to my close neighbor, Biggie Smalls, and quotes from his lyrics about starting from the bottom. She does the same sort of thing at a speaking engagement. Check this out. Oh, my God. Give me some. And here I'm thinking about um, how many people in this room are familiar with um, Leandro Guzman. Feliz. It's a 15-year-old boy uh, who was murdered in the Bronx last year. Um, so if you're in New York, you probably heard a lot about this. Um, <clears throat> and the narrative around it is that he was an innocent kid who was mistaken for a bad kid. Right? He was the kid who was um, hacked apart with machetes in front of a bodega in the Bronx. Um, and the idea is that he was mistaken for someone else um, by Trinitarios, right? who are a Dominican gang. Um, that comes out of Rikers, as most of the radical politics of New York City has done for many, many years. Um, but the part of the story that gets emphasized in different ways is that he was an explorer, right? Which is a program that the NYPD has to bring youth in um, to eventually work for them. And so when I think about this politics of silence that I'm talking about in the archives, right, and how silence can be a really radical presence historically. I think it's a radical presence today. Um, when people talk about snitches get stitches, right? Or when we think about um, a history of anti-apartheid st struggle in South Africa and necklacing, right? Um, and that kind of violence towards people who are collaborating or who are working against uh, their communities. We have to consider a radical moment in 2018 in which people are using machetes to hack apart a 15-year-old boy. That clip is pretty infuriating. And if you actually sort of sort through all of the kind of like liberal academic jargon, not to sound like, you know, it's it's crazy. I'm going to sound like Fox News here. But, you know, it's people like this that kind of give like the Black Lives Matter movement like a bad name. It's uh, irresponsible rhetoric like that. What she's doing is she's justifying murder. And it's also part of this thing that, you know, again, to go back to trying to like top minorities by trying to be the most radical. Uh, necklacing in South Africa was taking people that were suspected of collaborating with the apartheid government or political opponents within the black community, placing a tire around their neck and then setting them on fire while they're alive. Endorsement of this practice led to Nelson Mandela actually breaking and divorcing Winnie Mandela entirely, right? It like ends their marriage and ends their political alliance. So basically what I'm saying the message here is you have someone who's saying it's okay to kill someone if they work with the police and they endorse methods that even Nelson Mandela, the greatest revolutionary of the past century, right, would not endorse, right? So, you know, just just something to keep in mind here. It's, a, you know, no, no minorities that actually work on civil rights issues use this kind of irresponsible rhetoric because uh, we get killed for shit like that. Yeah, it's fucking absurd that she had a platform she had a stage continuously over and over again yeah for christopher donner uh think of the, how many shots that guy got for that speech that she just gave is what christopher donner did and like every cop in the state ended up killing that guy uh and if you want to look at the history of the black panther movement black people know that there are real consequences for the endorsement of violence because we have violence done to us even when we're non-violent so you know rhetoric like that is how you can tell actually that this person's not black and that's not their experience and it's also kind of funny, too, because she went to the Barstow School and she's talking about oppressed people for if you're not familiar with the Kansas City area, 
The Barstow School is the most elite school in the entire metropolitan area, a school that was created by graduates of some of the great East Coast elite schools because they wanted to create a version of that in Kansas City. If you go to the Barstow School's commercial on YouTube, it's actually narrated by a British person. <laughs> That's how elite the Barstow School is. So for her to be engaging in this, it's actually... You know, we'll talk about this. It's about her exploiting this space in like liberal white academia that sees black people as only victims and revolutionaries. She's also from Johnson County, Kansas, which per capita is usually in the top 10 wealthiest places in America. We also had the chance to talk to Justin's friend, Elisa Prosperetti, assistant professor at Mont Holyoke College, who met Krug at a conference, actually, and actually had a firsthand impression of her. Yeah, I met her in 2014, and I was a graduate student at Princeton University in history, in African history, and she came for an interview. And these things are like one day interviews, they're marathons, the candidate has to meet a million different people and committees. And part of that day, they have to sit in with some professors on the committee and some graduate students at a teaching lunch. And that's where they talk about like their approach to teaching and their classes and their syllabi. So I was there and I was part of that discussion. And then I had like a half an hour one on one with her, um, where we just talked about kind of like, her approach to teach mentoring graduate students. And then I went to her job talk and heard her talk about her research. And how was the the sort of the content of her job talk and teaching philosophy talk? Did, uh, did she get into the issues of identity and talk about how that informed her teaching philosophy? You know, 2014 feels like a really long time ago. And I don't remember anything like that coming up, but it's also very Princeton for that not to come up. Like it's very Princeton to be like, oh, politics and activism are not part of what we do here. And she didn't seem to have a problem with that. Like that's what I find kind of jarring thinking back to this 2014 event is she didn't seem to be this uh, super militant activist when she was answering the questions that the committee was posing to her. I remember this, like there was a course that she was pitching on the Atlantic slave trade or like pre-colonial Africa or something like that. And they were like, why do you think African history is the transatlantic slave trade? And I remember her saying something like, uh, this is the most important part of African history that people want to know about. And so we have to give it our full attention, but it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, like a world making or a liberation or an emancipation agenda, the way that she was answering these questions. It's funny. It, it strikes me as actually a pretty standard Western response. Africa only exists within the context 
of our interactions with it. She's code switching. So for Princeton, she's telling them what they want to hear, that Africa's importance is in its like worst interactions with the West, right? But she goes to another school and she's like, as part of a Boricua liberation project, I must reject slavery as the basis of my identity and reclaim, right? So, is that, I mean, am I getting that, a sense right that, she, that she, she, gave, she gave a different interview when it was Princeton is what you're saying? And that's what I remember. I mean, memory is faulty, but I'm just so struck by the difference between how she narrated herself in the last couple years of her career and who she was in 2014 when she showed up for that interview. As a person that is in academia, do you often come into contact with people that talk about their life story as a reason for their motivations to be in that field of study? Does that come into the conversation at all when you are maybe in a peer review session or when you're being critical of someone's work at all? How much of the author kind of gets wrapped up into the work? You know, it used to be that the author had nothing to do with the work. Like there was this principle of objectivity and you were a historian and you were like a scientist and you just applied some kind of neutral approach to the sources and a neutral story came out. And then there was a massive backlash against that starting in the 60s, but continuing on in various forms of saying the historian is the story that you tell. What you are lived is what you're able to see, essentially. And so that and that's true. That's fundamentally true. But the implications that it has for being an academic and particularly for something about history, which is all about narrative and how you sell a narrative and yourself as part of that, in a sense, you have to, that gets really complicated. And I think I've been thinking about the Jessica Krug story a lot. And I think part of what happened was that she got caught up in this idea that she had to have a black liberationist agenda in order to be a historian of black people. And that in order to have that, the only rightful way to, to do that was to pose or pitch herself as a black libera- liberationist activist. And all of that gets really, really complicated and totally, totally deranged. But I, I think that's where it must have come from, or at least part of it. And what struck me about it, does it, isn't it also kind of like about tiers of academic job, right? It's like that that personal narrative uh, appeals to institutions that are interested in having like some level of like public intellectuals, which tend to be like elite schools. Like, right, like she she's not a black, is she a black liberationist when she is interviewing at CUNY in the Bronx, right? Where the students are primarily Puerto Ricans from the Bronx. <laughs> uh, but, but in a place like GW, right, that narrative... I mean, it's also about the politics of like representation. It's about diversifying faculty at elite schools, the creation of minority spaces on elite schools through like affirmative action, right? Would you say that that played a part in it and that she's kind of exploiting those spaces as well? Yeah, I mean, the only reason that she was able to get away with it was because of how few people of color there are at these elite institutions. I mean, I I think that's really clear. There was, there's no accountability for her story because it's such a small and narrow space and and because it's such a small and narrow space and there's all the pressure to try to hold together. And so where is the space for critique of a person that isn't a critique that is a critique of the work and their legitimacy and being a historian, it gets all super muddy. How do you put Jessica Krug on the spectrum, if you will, with the uh, Rachel, Rachel Dolezal, Dolezal spectrum. And, 
and Hilaria and Hilaria Baldwin now. <laughs> how, how would you? I'm sorry, it's pronounced Hilaria. Right. Lo siento. Uh, how would you put? How would you put them on a spectrum? Uh, and, and compare them to each other. I know you're not, a, you know, a sociologist. This is not a professional, academic, peer-reviewed question, but just from your experience and your knowledge. I mean, probably Laria Baldwin made a lot more money off of that. <laughs> right? I mean, the mystique of being some glamorous Spanish woman teaching yoga is a whole different ballgame from being an upper crust Massachusetts. Right? Um, but Jessica Krug is pretty grimy. It feels like as pretty low as you can go. I mean, the most basic human right is the right to dignity. And, and dignity, you need stories. You need your history. You need an identity to have dignity. And she played and like basically undermined both of those things. I mean, she, she posed in this way that, that she took people's stories away from them in addition to trying to be something that she wasn't i don't know there's something so like profoundly messed up yeah, to me and there so could you who would you say is a victim of jessica krug as a histo- as a historian did her academia or her academic work quote trickle down if you will to people that that we could call victims in this case i mean i think there's a lot of a lot of damages damage that she made like from from the kind of the most flagrant and horrible thing to imagine is that she took funding opportunities and other kinds of professional opportunities from scholars of color women of color I mean that's that's the the flat out really kind of straightforward think but then I think first of all she really made it she made the identity politics flare up for all the wrong reasons like representation is really important but the kinds of representation that she was, like the kind of representation game that she was playing is all, pulls all the critics in the wrong direction. Everyone who is trying to police identity now is gassed up on both sides because of something like Jessica Cruz. So I think she fundamentally alters your ability to, to do the job of a historian because she introduces basically all of these ticking time bombs. And maybe you're saying, well, she didn't introduce them. They were always there. But the degree to which this thing blew up, I think just makes it really hard to to tell the best story that you can as a historian, to be as honest with yourself as you can as a historian, and also to like be part of a professional community with that honesty and sincerity at the heart of it. Because now it feels like, people have to over undersell aspects of themselves. Yeah. And for specifically for someone like you, right, you're a white woman that's in African studies. And so doesn't it hurt someone like you in the sense where it's like, you're like, hey, I'm just attempting to be myself and like present data in an impartial way. And now you have sort of like this performative, like version of identity politics that kind of like feeds the beast of this idea that you can't teach in a field that you don't belong to, but then also kind of like undermines white women at the same time. I mean, it's complicated because on the one hand, you could make an argument and say, look, only people of color could teach African history because African history 
is a history of the disenfranchised. It's a history of the marginal. And you have to know what that feels like. You have to have lived that in your bones in order for you to fully reckon with the trauma of this past. On the other hand, if, you, if that's the way that you see it, then you can get to a place where Africa is totally marginal to anyone who has not been disenfranchised or isn't marginal or however you're gonna define it. And that means that only when you get all the way down to it, only people with dark skin tones could ever think about Africa. And so then what happens? Africa becomes again separated from the world. Africa becomes again something that is other, something that is different, something that is disconnected, and something that isn't worth your time if you're someone who isn't part of the struggle. Yeah. And, and that is deeply problematic too. It's also a weird idea, you know, it's also for, you know, if you take that philosophy to its uh, kind of logical conclusion, it's very limiting for scholars of color. It's like, you know, you know, it's like, I'm pretty sure Martin Luther King's dream involved some black guy being able to talk about like the Irish famine as a professional, <laughs> you, know, and, you know what I mean? You don't have to like, you don't have to be like a slave to teach about slaves. You know what I mean? But yeah, yeah that's just my, my two cents. Well, your two cents matters a lot, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> no, I teach black stuff, but but you know, but I would like, but that'd be cool. I, 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 I should be able to teach Irish stuff. Yeah, yeah, I want that. Yeah, that if I if I do my research and things like that, I don't want somebody to say, "Hey, don't you talk about an Irishman?" Yeah, don't you talk about the potato famine if you don't know about potatoes? You know, yeah, you keep you keep it black, Blackie. Don't you talk about the <laughs> Irishman's plight? It's like, hey, man, I study political economy. <laughs> right but i mean that's just like the question that i think is, is really eternal and the reason that it is a question is because there's such a scarcity of jobs and of jobs to teach areas of the world that are that are considered marginal so once you have plenty of jobs once you have plenty of uh, funding for historians or humanities then i think these concerns recede it's like the scarcity and the cutting back of the neoliberal university that makes all of this so hyper tense. Like once there's opportunity that those questions are less important than what's the quality of the work that you do? How good are you at your job? What's the capacity that you have to reach students and to teach things that are challenging? Krug was outed almost indirectly. A colleague of hers had passed and in his obituary, they talked about his love of Cuban roots and all of these things. And his family came out and said, no, he was not really Cuban-American at all. He was just black American. And his family had read this obituary. That incident emboldened a group of previously skeptical fellow teachers to confront Krug about her identity. So, again, one thing unravels and then everything unravels. Krug, though, clearly learned from Dolezal's mistakes, not in that she learned that impersonating a racial identity is wrong, but at least in the sense that she didn't compare herself to Caitlyn Jenner when she was unveiled. No, she handled being outed very differently, posting a confession on the popular blog site Medium that began with, For the better part of my adult life, every move I've made, every relationship I've formed, has been rooted in the napalm of toxic soil of lies. Fluffy bread, fresh tortillas, classic burger buns, and so many carbs. 
carb fear is real. But Hero Bread makes healthier versions of the carb-heavy favorites we love the most. We're talking fewer calories, 0 to 2 grams net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and seriously great taste. Plus more of the dietary fiber and protein you want. No compromise. Don't skip out on your favorites. Just use Hero Bread. Get 10% off your order at Hero.co with code Hero10 at checkout. That's Hero10 at H-E-R-O C-O. Not just any lies. To an escalating degree over my adult life, I have eschewed my lived experience as a white Jewish child in suburban Kansas City under various assumed identities within a blackness that I had no right to claim. First, North African blackness. Then, US-rooted blackness. Then, Caribbean-rooted blackness. Then, Caribbean-rooted Bronx blackness. She goes on to say that mental illness is at the root. Is that right? Mental illness uh, is at the root of this charade, but that she takes full responsibility for her actions. How brave. I should absolutely be canceled. No, I don't write in passive voice ever because I believe we must name power. So you should absolutely cancel me and I absolutely cancel myself. Justin, what did you think when you first read this, assuming you followed the story at the time? I always skip stuff like this because it's always an essay that doesn't say I'm sorry. And it's always it, it always becomes part of the con, right? It becomes it becomes this is the reason why I had to do this and you should feel sorry for me. So claiming mental illness here again, it's just like another like despicable technique. And it's again, it's the it's like the exploitation of tolerance. It's like the fact that m- people with mental health issues do deserve understanding. It's like using that as an excuse. It's like. Yeah, you you weren't mentally ill when you were cashing those checks from an elite university. You weren't too crazy to put that put those checks in your bank account, were you? Exactly. Everything was totally fine. And the Medium post was very, very flowery intellectual language with zero fucking apologies. Her true story became public. Turns out Krug was not from the Bronx, not Puerto Rican, not North African, not Black American, but actually was raised by two middle-class white Jewish parents in Kansas and attended an elite private school in Kansas, the Barstool School, as you mentioned. We had the good fortune of being able to talk to Lauren Michelle Jackson, who wrote the New Yorker expose of Krug in the days following the explosive medium post. So let's go to the interview to try to unpack this a little. The natural question here is like, why did she do this? Why did she change her identity so many times? And one of the reasons she used in the Medium Post, right, is that, you know, she had a traumatic childhood. And and we see that a lot, again, with fraudsters where something happened that like shifted them, right? And they got their personality this way. Uh, some of them are just capitalists, but that's a little different. Uh, but But what do you think about that kind of rationale? And what did you think of the Medium Post in general? So the thing that really kind of annoyed me about the medium posts is that and I did point this out a little bit in the piece is that it it feels like she's using kind of a language of social justice restorative justice type of lingo to actually like skirt responsibility for this really elaborate thing that she did and like did to other people Um, And like put out in the world, you know, like on one, you know, she says intention never matters more than impact. And it's like, it's very like, I had mental health things going on, but she's like never really specific. 
about what those are. She's like, it's been diagnosed by experts or whatever. But again, it's like told in this kind of like psychology 101 way that it's like, okay, it's like, yes, that's true. I guess we could say in like a general sense, like a lot of people who have um, really intense and especially like childhood trauma do kind of, you know, reprogram their sense of themselves or or whatever, or latch on to different things that, you know, can help them kind of move on and move past the, you know, build around the trauma from their past, whatever. Like we all know, like we all know that. Like, <laughs> yeah, like I have an emotional was- <laughs> support animal because I, I was diagnosed by a psychiatrist. So it's like, I get a little dog, you know, other people change their race. <laughs> right. It's like also, yeah, it's like, that's like the other, that's like kind of the other part too. It's kind of like, you know, maybe they'll find, maybe they find other things to lie about. Maybe it manifests in different ways. Most people do not just like completely like lie about their race and, and who they came from and where they came from. Um, like otherwise, like I think as a society, I guess we'd be like much better equipped to deal with this sort of thing than we are. But, uh, for now it's like still very much a surprise probably because like, it's not that, the common of a thing to do but yeah I think the letter is just like you know on one hand you could say like there is really no version of a letter like this that's like there's no version of I said I was black and I'm not that's gonna like get the gold star but also I I do think like as a person who was getting involved or like trying to get involved with certain kinds of organizing spaces and community spaces like you can really see how that language is like soaking in this letter and a language that is actually being used to like absolve her of like intent and and action and behavior and yeah and I just find that kind of like icky yeah you pointed out like there's the words I'm sorry right don't appear in this entire sort of word salad of I'm the victim, <laughs> right? And that's actually a common thing with fraudsters uh, that we found, right? Is that even when they're busted, right? They always make it sort of about themselves again and, and that, they're the, that they're sort of the victim. And when you talked about the appropriation of blackness, right? You, uh, one of the things that I'm struck by is that the way that you kind of link this to capitalism in a lot of ways. Did you want to talk about that the way it's become like this market force? Yeah, I mean, so, <laughs> you know, I am not an economist. I'm a critic, but, you know, I think the longer you start to think about it and the longer you really look, you see how much capitalism really distorts what would otherwise seem to be sort of harmonious or, or kind of evolutionary relationships to culture. So, you know, we talk about cross-cultural pollination and acculturation and like all these like kind of buzzy words from anthropology to describe like an exchange of, of like values and interests and artistic practices and all these things which is like really nice and and good and cool to think about. And it's the way that art evolves. But then when you look at the money side of it and you look at who is being credited, who, you know, is named in these like homages and throwbacks and nostalgia and who's actually getting the money to, to do these things and get credited as like the avant-garde or whatever, you know, it's usually not 
not not the black folks, like not the blacks. It's it's the person who was borrowing from from them. <laughs> people get accused of cultural appropriation, but you say it's actually more nuanced than that, right? That people don't actually want black identity. Race is not fixed, right? It is never in any in like the history of human anything ever been fixed and you know not the way we speak about it now not the way it ever has been and so there's always been spaces and and gaps and means of different kinds of people sort of slipping and sliding between what is and is not recognized as a certain kind of racial identity or racial valence or racial body or something like that and so you know one of the reasons why i think passing is so is such a fascinating subject or is a subject of such fascination, you know, in America is because every evidence of passing is is evidence that these things that we think of as so closed, as so fixed as a matter of what bathroom you can get into or not are actually, you know, very fluid and, and very slippery. And, you know, so we sort of celebrate the, you know, the black person who's kind of able to, you know, manipulate white spaces that they can sort of slip into. We're less enthused about the the white person who um, kind of gets to be a part of like black organizing spaces under the guise of blackness for themselves. But you know, in both instances, it's it's really just evidence of of those gaps and those things that aren't you know, it's not a sealed wall between black and white. What was that OJ line? He's like, I'm not black, I'm OJ. Is that what he said? It's like he has that thing. <laughs> he has this all. I, it's in the doc. If you go to the doc, it's in there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Jay Z uses it in a song too. He says, "I'm not black. I'm OJ." <laughs> he like. He's like, yeah. I don't know. It was one of those like one of those songs on 444, which is like such an album that I like forgot. I like keep forgetting it like exists or whatever. But he's like kind of like derisively quoting OJ's words back to him like mm. I'm not black I'm OJ <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> I love that album because it relates to me as I get older because most of 444 is about uh, therapy building healthy relationships and financial planning <laughs> <laughs> before we go we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on Ilaria Baldwin the wannabe Spaniard. I am so happy. And you know, other podcasts have covered this as well. I think ScamWow. I, I don't know if Scam Goddess did it, but like the entire network of fraud podcasts have jumped on all of these. And it is, you know what? People say, well, one's better than the other. We're all a family. We're all attacking fraudsters and it's fantastic. Uh, we got a clip of Hilaria, who is Alec Baldwin's wife here. And she's... Uh, and Alec, in this clip, is is making fun of his wife, Hilaria. Really? Okay, I can't wait to see you. That's going to be great. Fantastic. What time? 12 o'clock? My wife is from Spain. Mm -hmm. And she said, and blah, blah, blah. And blah, blah, blah. I don't mean to be racist when I put that accent on there, by the way. Hilaria, very nice to Now, how do you say You say, Ilaria? Ilaria. Do people call you Hillary? Sometimes. So, and, you know, it's the same name. Right. So it's it's fine. It means happy. Family lives in Spain. Okay. And I have moved to New York mm -hmm. when I was 19 years old. Wow. I went to your English. Your English. Oh, my well, God. I have to speak English. 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 Oh, my God. Okay. I'm so impressed so, with your um, English. So, yes. And <laughs> my children, That's more racist than the accent. My, um, my family is mixed of a bunch okay. of different things. 35 or 40 of my family members come from Spain. 
We're going to go to España to see my family. Oh. So she'd be like, I have to pee every five minutes. I can't believe it. I'm here with your parents. No, no, no. I moved here when I was 19 to go to NYU. Ah, and from? from my family lives in Spain. They live in Mallorca. It's not Hilaria. It's not Hilaria. It's not even Hilaria. There is no H. There's no H. So, so pretend there's no H. It's okay. Hilaria. It's like hola. Yeah. In Spanish, you say hola. It's H-O-L-A. Nobody says hola. We have very few ingredients. We have tomatoes. We have... Um, how do you say anything? Cucumber. Cucumbers. We have um, red pepper. We have, of course... The oh, my God. Get the fuck. Come se dice cucumber? Story broke on December 21st, 2020. Uh, after uh, one at Lenny Briscoe tweeted, you have to admire Hilaria Baldwin's commitment to her decade-long grift where she impersonates a Spanish person. This was supplemented by a thread of receipts that even included her paternal grandfather's obituary. Spoiler alert, Hilaria's ancestors definitely came over on the Mayflower. What the fuck? This led to Hilaria <laughs> to post a very defensive Instagram video claiming that the media told the story they wanted to and that she's never claimed anything other than being a regular Bostonian girl. Let's roll that beautiful Espana footage. That there's, it's a, there's some stuff that needs to be clarified. Um, you know, I've tried in the past to be clear, but sometimes people don't always um, report and write what, what you say. And I've kind of just put my hands up. But there's been some questions about where I'm born. I'm born in Boston. And then I spent some of my childhood in Boston, some of my childhood in Spain, my family, my brother, my parents, my nephew, everybody is over there in Spain. Now I'm here. And so there was like a lot of back and forth my entire life. And I'm really lucky that I grew up speaking two languages. Um, so that was one thing. I think people ask sometimes about how I speak. I am that person that if I've been speaking a lot of Spanish, I, you know, tend to mix them. And if I'm speaking more English, I, you know, doing a lot of English, then I mix that. It's one of those things that's always been a little bit, I've been a little insecure about over different times. And, you know, when I try to work, I try to enunciate a little bit more. But if I get nervous or upset or something, then I start to, to mix the two. And again, that's just something that I've always been a little bit insecure about. But I've decided maybe 2021, we will get over that. And I'm definitely addressing it very openly right now with that insecurity. Um, but this idea that I'm trying, I do actually, I mean, I try to speak more clearly in each language. Um, um, I think that that's something that we should, I, I should try to do. And, um, but sometimes I mess it up, but it's not something that I'm like playing at. So I want that to be very, very, very clear. Um, and then, um, the, my name so my, when I was growing up, I, and in this country, I would use the name Hillary and in Spain, I would use the name Hilaria. I think that we can all be really like clear that it's the same name, just like a few letters different. So I think we shouldn't be so upset about it. And if whatever you guys want to call me, I will respond to both. Um, but what, literally whatever you guys want. And, um, I feel like those were all the points um i've said some things about like oh she's a white girl yes i am a white girl i am a white girl and let's be very clear that europe you know has a lot of white people in them 
in there and my family is white I'm you know ethnically I am a mix of many 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 things um culturally I grew up with the two cultures so it's really as simple as that um and the reason I wanted to take it so seriously is because this these are more you know cultural conversations are things that we're having a little bit more and more and I just want to be very very clear and I've, you know in the past I would get very frustrated when reporters would report this or report that or like you know and I'd try to be very clear and he'd be like, oh, so you were, you were born in Spain. And I was like, all right, let me give you a spoiler alert. You're the only one who knows. And I would be laughing because it was like, anytime I would say it, people just want to label you as something else. And I'm like, I'm born in Boston. It was literally the first thing that I told my husband. And yeah, I'm a different kind of Bostonian, but that's who I am. And, and you kind of can't change your, your background. No, I wouldn't want to. I'm like really, really proud of who I am. And all of my different experiences and has it made me insecure as everybody over the years? Sure. Yeah. I've had my, my insecurities, but I've, I'm learning that, you know, what makes me unique is also of, of value to myself and I can embrace it. And, um, now Justin, I totally get why people are so upset by her appropriating Spanish culture. That said, Spanish people are white. So does that mitigate all that Ilaria was doing? Is she any less culpable? Is she any less culpable than Dolezal or Krug? Yeah, it's still awful. It's still a lie. And let me just, let me just, I mean, just as an aside. (laughs) I mean this, I mean this. Uh, White people, are you okay? Like... Like I have my own thesis. None of this is backed up by research, by the way. So don't say this professor. Okay, has okay. These Lay it on me. Lay it on me. I think I think there's some white people, especially if they're operating in liberal spaces. Get off the boat. They feel like it's not cool to be white anymore, so they're like trying to be something mm. or like you know like, like like Spanish is white, but it's like white with a twist. Like and it's you know it's part of like it's like I don't know did it, did assimilation cost white people something <laughs> like you like white people came here from fucking poland and italy and england and all these uh all these cool like places you with and, but you all like now all you do is eat cheeseburgers and you hot dogs yeah you came from all these places that are like interesting i guess they're different but you gave all that up to be white people when that was in and now that white people's kind of like not in are, in certain spaces. It's like saying, still mostly. Are you in. saying they're fair like, weather white? Now you like trying to like be something again? <laughs> Is that what's going on here? <laughs> These are fair weather whites. They 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 changed their name to Smith when they came over here on those boats. They get to get to get away from whatever it was within two generations. And now now you're trying to put an accent back on. I just want to know what's going on with white people. And it also. No one should be saying I'm blessed to be speaking two languages. I think it should be a requirement in this country that you speak two languages. I am happy that I do speak two languages. But at the same time, I wish I spoke three or four, frankly. The fact that if you don't speak, if you only speak English, you are behind. In this global economy, in this global universe, learn a new fucking language, people. Okay? And language isn't identity. You know, I speak French at a sixth grade level, I don't go around claiming to be Louis the Fourteenth. Mm, hello, bonjour. Well, this dude, that was a lot. And and the crazy part is there are many, many more race chameleons that we could have talked about on this episode. Before we go, we have a couple honorable mentions that I'd like to bring in our resident 
uh, Afrocentric queen Marie Anderson from Tennessee. White women must apologize for impersonating our beautiful Nubian sisters, like Satchel Pageland Cole, a.k.a. Jennifer Benton, a community organizer for Black Lives Matter in Indiana that confessed to impersonating a person of color on Facebook. Apologize! Friends, I need to take accountability for my actions and the harm that I have done. My deception and lies have hurt those I care most about. I have taken up space as a black person while knowing I am white. I have used blackness when it was not mine to use. I have asked for support and energy as a black person. I have caused harm to the city, friends, and the work that I held so dear. For my Latinx kings and queens out there, do not forget Natasha Lycia Oria Bannon, the 43-year-old human rights lawyer who worked as senior counsel at Latino Justice Puerto Rican Legal Defense and Education Fund. This white lady, who is of Italian, Irish, and Russian descent, claimed Puerto Rican and Colombian heritage for over a decade. Apologize! I have identified as Latina for decades, not out of a desire to exploit or take advantage of a community that helped raise me, but rather because I genuinely knew it to be a part of my story, even though I do not trace ancestral roots to Latin America. White women, we must repent. Burn your bronzer. Stay away from the kente cloth. Don't put those hoop earrings on. Return to Lululemon. Have a pumpkin spice latte. We must not lose our power to speak to the manager. All right, that's it for the show today. We got one more part on this Race Hustler series, and that's going to be on Freedman's Bank, on the Reconstruction Era Bank that took money from newly freed slaves. Uh, It's going to be a great historical episode. As always, thank you to Hazel Bryan, wonderful producing. Justin Williams, thank you so much for doing all of this beautiful uh, contextualization and and history-driven, you know, discussion around this i think i've learned so much again from everything you've done marie anderson as always thank you so much uh for your edits and special thanks to lauren michelle jackson author of white negroes and another big thanks to elisa prosperetti visiting professor at history at mount holyoke college and elaine romero author fashion hip-hop and latinx journalist and assistant professor as well this has been a production of zero cool media and last podcast network we'll see you next time Fluffy bread, fresh tortillas, classic burger buns, and so many carbs. Carb fear is real, but Hero Bread makes healthier versions of the carb-heavy favorites we love the most. We're talking fewer calories, 0 to 2 grams net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and seriously great taste. Plus more of the dietary fiber and protein you want. No compromise. Don't skip out on your favorites. Just use Hero Bread. Get 10% off your order at Hero.co with code Hero10 at checkout. That's Hero10 at H-E-R-O dot C-O.